Good morning. It is uh, a blessed Lord's Day, a joy to be together uh, as a spiritual family to, to celebrate and commemorate uh, our Lord and Savior. Um, th- throughout our nation, uh, much of the world today, people are celebrating Easter, uh, a yearly commemoration of the resurrection, the empty tomb, uh, and springtime, uh, and, and bunnies and candy and all sorts of other good things. Uh, And while we don't see in our Bibles any divinely ordained uh, yearly celebration of this day, uh, much like we may acknowledge the the national celebration of Mother's Day or or Thanksgiving, um, I I think we we can be thankful today that even the culture around us is encouraging us to think about Jesus. Um, And certainly uh, the, the resurrection the empty tomb is something that we as God's people should uh, continually be, be thanking and praising God for. And so I think now is uh, certainly an appropriate time to, to take some time to, to, to think about what it is that, that our, our, our nation, our culture is encouraging us to think about. Um, and so as we've gathered here for the Lord's Day, uh, commemorating his death and the emblems uh, of his body and blood, let's not forget that the message of the gospel is not just the cross. Uh, the gospel would be incomplete without the empty tomb. Even as we take that cup, it's the life-giving blood that we are being reminded of. In 1 Corinthians 15, there, there were some in Corinth who were having a hard time wrapping their minds around this idea of a bodily resurrection. Um, As you get farther into 1 Corinthians 15, we see some reasons why they might have been struggling with that idea. But but Paul has them pause to consider uh, what the gospel would be without the resurrection. Have you thought about that? What, What would the gospel be without the resurrection? If the gospel was just the cross and not the empty tomb, What would that mean for us? I want us to to take some time to consider that question along with Paul today. Could we still find historical and and moral and spiritual value within the teachings of Christ if it was not for the empty tomb? Well, let's look back uh, at that passage that Jared read for us earlier here in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And read with me again in verse 14 through 17. I think we'll see, first of all, without the resurrection, there ultimately is no faith. Verse 14 beginning, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul doesn't say here that that their preaching was just a little less powerful without the resurrection. Um, That their faith was a little less firm or a little less impactful. He says it would be vain. It would be empty, pointless, futile. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, uh, you shouldn't listen to a thing, single thing I've told you, <laughs> Paul is saying. Um, if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then, then everything that the apostles have been preaching is false. We've, we've been found to be false witnesses. The resurrection was the foundation uh, of everything 
that they taught. And if it's not true, then, then none of it is true. I think we need to appreciate that the resurrection was what we might call the, the linchpin of the gospel. The, the resurrection was the foundation and, and the focus of the faith that the apostles were preaching. And, and we see this all the way back in Jesus' teaching. Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, look, look at verse 38 through 40 with me. It says here, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, And even an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus anticipated the, the foundational nature of his resurrection to, to faith here. Jesus says, this is the sign that I am giving you. Um, the sign of all signs. It, w- it wasn't Jesus's healing of leprosy or his healing of, of blindness or lameness or demon possession. It wasn't him turning water to wine or walking on the water or feeding the 5,000. The resurrection is the miracle like none other. It demonstrates the most foundational identifying mark of deity as the giver and source of life, true life, incorruptible life, unconquerable life. And so Jesus says, out of all the things that he has done and all the things he is doing, this is where he wants to point their focus. If if you're not convinced by anything else, this is the sign that I'm going to give you. And we see that in the apostles' preaching, that the resurrection was what the entire gospel was was founded and held together on. It all hangs on this. Look in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, here we see uh, as they're preparing for the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, they recognize they need to um, replace Judas as an apostle. And I want you to notice the language that's used here as they describe what it meant to be an apostle, what the work of an apostle was. In verse 21 of Acts chapter 1, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. He didn't say one of them must become an apostle. <laughs> that is what he was becoming, but he says, become a witness of the resurrection. And, and he does say that he should be somebody who is with them all the time from the baptism of the dominant until the ascension. But he doesn't say a witness of the ascension. He doesn't say a witness of the cross. He doesn't say a witness of this miracle or that miracle. He says to be a witness of the resurrection. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we continually see the apostles are pointing towards the re- resurrection. I, I, I challenge you to read through the book of Acts and see how many times the resurrection is mentioned. Try, try to find a sermon where the resurrection is not mentioned. Uh, even in, in some cases where the cross is not explicitly mentioned, the resurrection is So that was the foundation of the gospel message. That is what the apostles were continually drawing people's attentions toward, in large part because that was 
the sign of all signs. That was uh, the, the proof, the foundation on which their faith was built. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. How do we know that Jesus is who he claimed to be? How do we know that he is the Son of God, the Christ, the Lord? He was declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection. Now, you might think about a couple different times that, that God declared Jesus to be a son. You, you think about the baptism of Jesus, where the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. You might think about the ascension, uh, or, or rather the, the transfiguration, um, where there again, the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. But but what our attention is drawn to more than anything else is not that they were a witness of the ascension, not that they were a witness of the baptism. It's that within the resurrection, God definitively made it clear that Jesus is the son, that Jesus is deity. Uh, the heir to God's throne cannot remain in the tomb. The tomb is empty because the throne in heaven is filled. The resurrected Jesus is Lord, is Christ, is King, and he's reigning in heaven above, and the empty tomb testifies to that. And our faith in his rule as Lord and King stands on firm ground because of the resurrection, because of those who witnessed the empty tomb and saw his living body walking this earth for, for weeks after the events of Calvary, uh, ultimately ascending to heaven in the clouds. Look back with me in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and notice what Paul says about the gospel that he was preaching. We, we saw this in the book of Acts. That's what uh, the resurrection is what the apostles were continually focusing on. Um, the work that they came to do was to, to witness to the resurrection. But notice what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, in verse 1, he describes this. This is the gospel that he preaches that he's reminding them about. In verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brother, uh, brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's the gospel that he's preaching? Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again, and here are the witnesses. This is how you can know that everything that we're teaching you about Jesus is true. Because uh, there, there are numerous Witnesses. In fact, Paul doesn't even list all the witnesses here that we have listed for us in the Gospels as well. You know, you, you can go and ask Mary Magdalene. You can go ask Peter. You can go ask John. Go ask James. Go ask Thomas. Go la ask any of these 500 brethren who saw Jesus raised from the dead, uh, those who are still living. And so when the Gospels testified that to us, when Paul testifies to that, that to us, they're encouraging their, their initial readers, go check it out. You don't just have to take my word to hear all these witnesses, all these people referenced in the gospel that, that, that you can go ask. You, you think if they did go and ask those people, uh, you know, do, do, do you think that the, the gospel would have lasted? 
You think if, if Paul said, all these 500 brethren have seen the resurrected Lord, and then somebody goes and checks and said, no, I, that, that's not true. I didn't see that. Well, then the gospel would have gone anywhere. But the empty tomb, those who witnessed the resurrected Lord, continued to testify. And it continued to spread. And, and we see even the reluctance of some of these witnesses. You see Thomas in, in the gospel of John. He didn't want to, to believe. He had already been heartbroken. Um, everything that he expected the Messiah to be had come crashing down. And he wasn't going to just readily jump on and believe that anytime soon again. Show me the, the nail prints in his hand. Show me the, the uh, spear piercing in his side. Then I'll believe. You think, you know, for, for all the apostles, they did not expect a crucified Lord. None, none of the Jews were expecting a crucified Lord. This is not their anticipation of what this Christ, this King was going to be. And so accepting this idea that their Messiah, that Jesus was going to be crucified and raised again, um, was not something they, they were just overly eager to, to accept. And in fact, you think about these apostles who had just come close to death themselves, who just narrowly escaped being up on the cross there with Jesus. You think that uh, they, they were really eager to go out and start proclaiming this Jesus that the, the Jewish leaders and, and the, the Roman officials had just put to death on a cross. You think that was a very safe um, and comfortable thing for them to do? Why would anybody want to do that? It's not that they just had some, you know, easily explained ulterior motive to, to carry on this message. In fact, everything would have motivated them not to say anything, not to continue to preach this, this message that, that led to death, that would ultimately lead towards their death. And yet we see the effect of the witnesses. You know, first century Judaism, uh, what was not just especially fertile soil for a message like this, it's not that this, this is what the Jews were looking for. You look in, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, this was a stumbling block to the Jews. This is not what they expected the Messiah to be. Um, a, a, a dead Messiah, a crucified Messiah, was, was not what they were looking for. And it was foolishness to the Greeks. It looked like, like weakness in comparison with the great feats uh, of their God. Crucifixion was the penalty of a, a criminal, was a shameful death. How can we explain that the gospel spread the way that it did? That it transformed people's lives? That still today it's spreading? Culturally speaking, it's not that this just happened to be a message that, that you know, people were really eager to receive. From an earthly standpoint, here are people that lost everything. People that suffered, that died, that didn't gain any earthly wealth or any fame, any of the fame that they might have received really mostly was after their death. And so... How can we explain all of this? The, the resurrection, the effect that it had, the witnesses to it uh, are the foundation, the linchpin of, of our faith. Um, did the apostles sacrifice all of that for a lie? Certainly not. 
But if there was no resurrection, then we're saying they're false witnesses. Um, that, that the faith itself uh, comes crashing down without the resurrection. But not only would there be no faith without our resurrected Lord, but there would be no salvation. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17 said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is more than just saying that the gospel is robbed of truth, of its convincing and convicting power, if there was no resurrection. Um, Without the resurrection, the gospel is robbed of its cleansing power. It's not just Jesus' blood, his life spilt upon the cross that cleanses us. It is as well his victory over the power of sin and death. Him bursting the bonds of death, setting us free from its hold. If, If Christ has not been raised, then death still reigns. Look look with me in Romans 4 for a moment. Romans 4, and we'll we'll see this idea of death reigning a little bit more clearly as we get into chapter 6. But first notice at the very end of Romans 4, um, we're going to read verse 23 through 25. This was talking about Abraham and his faith um, counted to him as righteousness here in verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you you see that there? He, He connects the death of Christ, him dying for our trespasses and transgressions, but but he also connects the resurrection with our justification. Without the resurrection, there is no justification. Uh, Think about it this way. On the day of atonement, the high priest not only slayed the sacrifice at the altar, but he entered into the most holy place to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Jesus, by rising from the dead, entering into heaven and presenting his blood at the throne of God has essentially completed our atonement. Um, The atoning sacrifice will not ultimately save us if death continues to rule over our lives. The price may have been paid, but if the transaction wasn't completed, um, then death is still our master. Look in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Paul writes, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never uh, die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, so Christ's death buries the old man of sin. But it's his resurrection that has the power to raise us up to walk in newness of life. Um, 
The, the crucifixion takes care of our past, but the resurrection gives us a future. A new life free from death's reign. Uh, an eternal life under the rule of God and in fellowship with him. The gospel is incomplete without the resurrection. The resurrection is not some addendum to the gospel. It, it is the gospel. Now, certainly the resurrection wouldn't make any sense without the cross. Uh, so we're not saying that the resurrection is in some way more important. But, but the cross ultimately has no significance if not for also the resurrection. They go together. You can't have one without the other. The empty tomb is every bit as central to the gospel as the cross. You know, imagine for a moment if we preached half a baptism. You know, just the going down into the water part and not the coming back up part. What would the result of that be? Well, it'd be disastrous, right? It would be deadly. Um, you, you can't have half of a baptism. Um, God intends for us not just to teach, teach uh, Jesus' death and burial, but his resurrection as well. There's no salvation, no justification without it. And, and going back to this idea of, of the high priest uh, completing atonement by bringing it into God's presence, uh, you think without the resurrection, there is no one to intercede for us. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, um, here a contrast is being made from the ministry of the high priest throughout the Old Testament and what Jesus brings for us today. Look in verse 23. Hebrews 7, verse 23 through 25, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If Jesus does not live and continue forever as our high priest, what's the result? Well, he's not able to save to the uttermost. Uh, there's no one to continue interceding for us, giving us access to the throne of God, drawing us near to God's presence. Uh, we, we would still stand outside the veil. Uh, we, we may have the, the pure blood of our sacrifice, but we have no one with the authority to take us within the veil, to take us in, to complete that atonement. Um, Jesus's atoning intercession is not complete and continual, if not for the resurrection. Uh, it would be in the past, but not in the future. It would be limited by death, just as it had always been. And so it is Jesus' indestructible life. It is his conquering of death that, that completes and fulfills and continues our atonement and his intercession for us as our high priest. Without the resurrection, we would still be dead in sin. Uh, we would be buried but not raised to walk in newness of life. Our guilt, our brokenness, our separation from God would remain. That's how central the resurrection is to the gospel. Not only as a foundation and linchpin of our faith, um, but as a central aspect of the atonement and justification that Jesus provides. And thirdly, without the resurrection of Christ, we would have no hope. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 Corinthians 15, and, and read with me together in verse 18 and 19. You just finished saying in verse 17, uh, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Brethren, a hope in Christ that is limited to this life is no hope at all. If taking up our cross is all that there is, uh, if there's no road on the other side of Calvary and and the tomb, uh, then then we're just wasting our time with Christianity. That's how central the hope of resurrection is. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, uh, then the grave is all we have to look forward to. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 20. Uh, Let's read 20 through 23 here. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then that is coming those who belong to Christ. Here, Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. It's the beginning of a much greater harvest to come. It gives us assurance of the the bounty that we can anticipate as those who have sown not to the flesh and its corruption, but sown to the spirit, um, the life-giving spirit. It gives us assurance that following in the footsteps of Jesus will one day lead us to the same destination. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, down in verse 30, Paul then asks the question, why are we in danger every hour? I I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul says, do do you see the way that we're living? This gets back to the point that we were making in a foundation of our faith. If, If this is not true, if what we're witnessing is false, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then, then we're, we're throwing our lives away. Why, why would I put myself in such risk? Why would I put myself in, in such, uh, as the brunt of such persecution and suffering? Why would I take up my cross? If, if there's nothing, if there's no hope of, of being in God's presence beyond that. You know, if death is all that we have look, to look forward to, then there is no point whatsoever in us taking up our cross. Selfishly speaking, We should live it up. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Enjoy the passing pleasures of sin while we can. Store up our treasures here on earth because that's all that we're going to get. Do whatever feels right in the moment. You can only live once. So let's make the most of it. You know, for for many people, that, that is the approach to life. But notice what Paul says in response to that attitude in verse 33 and 34. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 
Paul says, that's not the way you're supposed to live. That's not true. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Get, get away from that foolish way of thinking. Don't let that influence you. We do have hope. We do have something so much more valuable, so much greater than what this life has to offer us. You know, I, I think sometimes we, we may end up, even as Christians, falling into the trap of emphasizing primarily what Christ can do for you right here and right now. And, and there's some truth to that. For First Timothy, uh, Paul talks about how godliness has a promise of the life that now is and the life that is to come. Um, following God's will is going to um, make for strong families, for strong marriages, for strong relationships, is going to, um, well, because of the hope that we have in the future, it's going to give us a peace in the suffering that we face now. So there's blessings in that. But, but do you recognize that even that peace that we have in sufferings, even the joy that we have now, even the content that we have now, really rests on the hope of what it is that we're looking forward to in the future. The gospel is not focused on making your life better in the here and now. Paul makes that very clear. He, he said earlier, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do we have that eternal focus even as Christians? Um, is that what we're drawing people's attention towards? Is that what we're talking about? Is that what the gospel that we're preaching? It needs to be. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What, what gives us the ability to run this race with endurance? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Well, what, what gave Jesus the ability to run with endurance? The race that was set before him. What, what gave him the ability to endure suffering and grief and shame in the cross? It says the joy that was set before him. The joy of finishing his race at the right hand of the throne of God and welcoming the redeemed to join him there. Imagine running a race with no finish line. How long would you be able to endure? What, what if we, we took the Pittsburgh half marathon and we said, we're, we're not going to make it a half marathon anymore. What, what we're going to do is we're just going to call it the Great Pittsburgh Race. And we're going to have everybody come and, and start running. And we're not even going to tell you where you're supposed to run or where you're supposed to go. We're just going to, you know, j just run until, until you decide to stop, until you uh, get worn out. What, what, what if we did that? And we had all these people come together for the great Pittsburgh race and uh, you, just, you, you just stop wherever you want to. 
well, people are going to be dropping out right and left like flies. As soon as they start getting tired, well, I, I, I guess I can stop now. I don't know, right? No, it's, it's that finish line that gives that race purpose, that gives it direction. If, if there's no finish line, if there's no joy out before us, then there, there's no point in, in enduring, right? It has to be something that we're striving towards. You know, you, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, maybe seen it embroidered somewhere. It's, it's about the journey, not the destination. Really? Is that true? Certainly, as we think about life as a whole, um, I, I think if we stop and think about it, we, we can see how foolish that, that is. Th think about it this way. If, if, if you were on a, a river cruise out on the Niagara River, and suddenly you, you realized that you were going straight for the falls. And as panic began to ensue on this boat, and everybody started you know, rushing, saying, hey, we need to turn around, we need to turn around, the, the boat captain comes on in his calm, serene voice and says, don't worry, it's about the journey, not the destination. D do you think anybody's going to be satisfied with that? Of course not. You know, and, and, and maybe there is some colloquial wisdom in, in, in slowing down and appreciating the blessings that we're, we're given in the here and now, right? Uh, maybe that's kind of where this, this phrase comes from. But, but as, as a foundation for the way that we live, you can very quickly see how foolish that is. Maybe that sounded good up when you were farther on the Niagara River, but the closer you get to the falls, that's going to sound a lot more foolish, isn't it? For the Christian, it is not about the journey and not the destination. It's all about the destination because our Lord is the destination. Because we want to spend an eternity with him. And so thank the Lord that on the journey we can walk with him. Thank the Lord that, that we can have him by our side, but that's not what it's about. Jesus describes discipleship as taking up our cross. And if that's all it is that we have to look forward to, Paul says, of all men, we're most to be pitied. The gospel is empty. The gospel is foolish if it is not for the resurrection. If it's not for the hope that we have beyond this finish line. Look, look, look at another illustration in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verse 18 through 23 here. Starting in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the illustration that, that Paul uses here? 
you know, j just like the, the finish line gives purpose and value uh, and, and meaning to the journey, here he uses the illustration of childbirth. You know, I, I'm told that uh, childbirth is among the most difficult and painful experiences uh, that anyone can go through. But, but generally speaking, would we think of childbirth, childbirth as a dreadful and sorrowful experience? Or as something joyous and beautiful? You know, why, why would anyone ever want to endure childbirth? Why shouldn't we just avoid that at, at all? costs. Sounds pretty horrible, right? Well, it's because of the joy of new life. While, while one of the most difficult and painful experiences, it is also one of the most profoundly beautiful and joyous experiences that human beings can ever witness. That's how Paul describes the experience of corruption and death in this world. It's the pangs of childbirth. That God is looking forward to, all creation is looking forward to the ultimate birth of new life, of God's children, being adopted by him, being taken home to be with him. But if you take away the new life, if all the pain and difficulty of childbirth only ends in death, then how would you view that experience? There are mothers that have gone through that. And I imagine it is one of the most devastating and tragic experiences possible. That's not something you would wish on your worst enemy. If there's no resurrection, then that's what this corruptible world is leading towards. All the pangs of childbirth are only going to end in death and in disappointment. Is that all that we have to look forward to? By God's grace, by the power of the resurrection from the dead, we look forward to something so much greater. We look forward to the joy of new life, the most beautiful and joyous experience possible, rising forth from that which is painful and difficult and sorrowful. For the Christian, we, we can look forward through the pains of death, to see uh, the joy of resurrection beyond. Praise God that Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death, giving us a firm foundation for our faith, securing our atonement, and giving us hope beyond the grave because Jesus is risen from the dead. We have firm grounds for our faith. There are many who witnessed not only the empty tomb, but the resurrected Lord, um, who uh, against all reason and earthly motivation continued to proclaim it and spread it, and we see the effect of that. We have a salvation from corruption and death. We have a completed atonement, and we have a hope of eternal life in God's presence. But brother, not all who experience the pains of childbirth are going to experience the new life. For that, you need to become a child of God. Surrendering your life to Jesus, um, 
burying the old man of sin in the waters of baptism, and by the grace of the Lord and His power, by the Spirit of holiness, being raised to walk in newness of life, can make all the suffering and the pain of this life have purpose, have meaning, and even have beauty, and have value. The destination makes the journey worth walking. And we can each day walk with a peace and a joy and a hope because we know that our Lord is walking with us and we know where his footsteps lead. If you've not committed your life to the Lord, if you've made that commitment but you haven't been living it, won't you surrender your heart and your life to the Lord today? so that you can be adopted into God's family, so that you can be his child, so that you can walk in newness of life and look forward to an eternity being taken home to be with our Father forever. If there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, uh, any public change that you need to make, if you need to come to the Lord for the first time, if we can help you in that, won't you please let us know at this time as we stand and sing together.